A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The Leicester lockdown is now taking effect and there's quite a few mumblings and grumblings about it for some reason, which I find quite surprising. Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, announced last night that after 11 days of study, the government has decided to take this precaution because of a spike in coronavirus cases in that East Midlands city. The anti-lockdown brigade say it is an overreaction. But then they would say that, wouldn't they? Surely the point is that if this is going to happen, it's better to deal with it rationally, calmly and with a degree of common sense, which of course is what we have uh, in bucket loads here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. If there are new outbreaks in one city, it makes perfect sense, does it not, to disencourage people from going to the pub. But if you're fairly sure they're not going to listen, then you have to keep the pubs closed, don't you? If you saw what happened at the beaches over the last couple of weeks, if you saw what happened on those marches over the past month or so, if you saw what happened with those raves in various cities, with the violence breaking out in Brixton, with people attacking the police, with people seemingly behaving like complete and utter morons, it does seem rather clear uh, that in some instances in this country, the people are too stupid to know what to do. So the government has to tell them what to do, and in order to make that work properly, particularly in a place like Leicester, then they need to ask them to stay in sort in doors for another couple of weeks. I don't think that's too much to ask, is it? It's two more weeks and it's probably also a practice run for what happens if the same thing is required somewhere else. I'm not going to sit here and say the government is doing the wrong thing. Uh, It's all very well saying the risk is small, that anyone is going to catch the virus, but that risk is clearly higher in Leicester at the moment. We'd love to hear from you this morning because you may think that I've gone completely stark staring bonkers mad. You might think that I've suddenly gone over to the other side. You might disagree with Matt Hancock, uh, but can you really be sure that they they are not doing the right thing. 0344 499 1000. We'll talk to Dr. Mark Harris, a virologist, coming up very shortly and get his view uh, of whether this is the right thing to do. Coming up later on, we'll be bringing you Boris Johnson live from the West Midlands, where he's going to set out his new deal for the UK in a keynote speech, invoking the spirit of post-depression America and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's FDR, a man you're going to be hearing an awful lot about in the coming days. It's a programme of spending, of building and of investing in the country's future. Will it do the trick? Will it take us out of lockdown economic crisis? I certainly hope so. But also we'll be finding out why you should be buying wine that comes in a bottle made of paper, just how bad the traffic is going to be on Super Saturday as everyone heads out to spend the night somewhere else. 
and of course we'll be telling you what the latest plan is to save a bit of money on the HS2 project. And homeschooling today is all about the Georgians. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to another uh, common sense headquarters based situation, because here we are. uh, It's not very pleasant out there. uh, And if you woke up this morning feeling slightly under the weather, it's probably because of the weather. Uh, It's raining in lots of parts of the country. Uh, It's dull and gloomy down here in London. I'm looking out at the Tower of London uh, and it doesn't look particularly sparkling this morning because uh, it's all very grey. It's all very dull. It's all very boring. Quite frankly, the entire nation needs a holiday, uh, but I'm afraid we can't have one yet. Uh, But we'll bring you news on that as soon as we can. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Just for now, uh, let us uh, take a little breather from politics and take a little breather uh, from the lockdown because one of the things that lots of people have been doing in the lockdown is learning about cooking, learning about drinking, learning about wine. And I'm about to speak to the world's greatest expert on wine, Helena Nicklin, uh, wine and spirits expert from the Three Drinkers uh, Amazon show. Helena, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi there. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. Now, I I have to confess to have been made very jealous by you because your Instagram posts always look deliriously brilliant. Um, Aside from the fact that you're no longer travelling to, you know, exotic parts of the world and tasting wine, you seem to be still doing quite a lot of it uh, homeward bound. Yes. Um, well, everything else got cancelled, so there wasn't very much else I could do apart from write, write, write. And that did mean sort of sample, sample, sample. So, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. we've got you on today because a piece of the Times uh, suggesting that somebody has come up with a wine bottle made of paper. Uh, they're calling it the frugal bottle made from 94% recycled paperboard with a food grade liner to hold the wine. They're selling it uh, from an Ipswich based company saying that it's 84% less of a carbon footprint than glass. Well, that may well be, but I'm not sure I want to drink my wine out of paper. Yeah, I'm, it's a bit of a tricky one because I don't think we can argue with the fact that actually this is the way wine should be going, given how many bottles are produced every year. But isn't it true that so much of, of the enjoyment of wine is in the bottle itself and just the whole, it's the pouring of it, it's the holding it, it's what it looks like, mm. and it just doesn't look that great. Maybe they could do something, maybe they could approve that later. But yeah, it really does take something away from the experience. But... I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I can't tell from the picture, but it looks sort of like a solid um, bottles rather than, you know, something you can see through. And again, one of the pleasures of, of drinking wine is sort of looking at the bottle, maybe hold, if, especially if it's a rosé or, or a white wine, holding it up to the light, holding it up to the, you know, the daylight and if you're outside and, and, and enjoying the, the look of it. Yeah, I, I agree. That is one of the pleasures of it. And it is it looks a little bit like it's there's a bottle of wine that's had a paper bag stuck around it, you know, brown <laughs> paper bag. You know, a bit like the, the winos drink out of in nineteen eighties films, American films. Yes. But um maybe this is just the prototype, maybe this is the mini disc of what will become something much better, you know before we went digital yes because it is a great idea it's just not sexy is it it really isn't you know what it reminds me of actually it's a bottle of malibu ah! <laughs> and yeah. i don't want to be reminded of a bottle of malibu really because that sort of takes me back to some terrible teenage years of, of drinking terrible drinks yeah yeah i, I feel that pain like for sure <laughs> uh, but i mean yeah. i suppose you know this new normal which whichever it ends up being um, could be very strange. I mean, we're opening pubs at the at the weekend. Um, I was saying to somebody earlier on that, you know, last week uh, I was in uh, a pub not far away from here 
uh, which was supposed to be takeaway pub, and you walk in and you social distance and you see somebody behind a, um, you know, um, a screen of of some kind. You pay with your contactless card. You take your drink outside. Two weeks ago, you were taking it down the, the street and finding a bench to sit on. People are now standing around outside the pub. So actually, the new normal is not that different from the old normal. No, not really. It's just a bit, it's just not quite as good. Is it's, it? it's not quite as good, but I mean, it won't take much to get it back to where it will be. And we're actually doing a show um, on Saturday from a pub. Um, if you want to, if you want to pop down and join us, you'd be we'd delighted to have you as a guest. Um, and we're going to be on a terrace. We're going to be overlooking uh, the street. We're going to be one floor up, and the pub is opening for business um, at midday. Uh, we're going to be in there from slightly earlier than that. But you know, um, I don't think that's going to feel terribly different after what we've been through for the last three or four months. No. Do you think people are going to go absolutely crazy though? I, um, I fear that may happen because the one thing you can be definitely sure about Britain is that um, it's basically fueled by alcohol. The entire nation is fueled by drink. Yeah, um, that's the thing. I think you're you're very brave. I mean, yeah. Well, this is in, uh, but it's going. Well, we're going. We're, we're starting in the morning and we're leaving at lunchtime. So you know, we're out of there before it starts to become the Wild West. Yeah, well, that's that's possibly true. But, you know, desperate times, people might be getting in there very early. Yes. Now, according to this uh, piece I'm reading in The Times, one Italian vineyard has already taken up the offer um, and the bottle is under active consideration by several British supermarket chains. And I suppose the one thing that could lead to the success of this idea is that there's a great deal of virtue signalling to be had with it, isn't there? Yeah, huge. Um, I think it's actually going to do really well. I mean, especially for wines like this, this Italian one, it's a little Sangiovese. So, you know, the grape that makes Chianti, but it's not Chianti. It's about £13. It won't be more than that. So it doesn't matter if it's not going to be laid down for years. Yes, I mean, having that somewhere, virtue signaling, signaling is a huge thing. But I think people are genuinely a lot more worried about the environment than they used to be pre-lockdown because um, they've had a lot longer to think about it do you think see i think the opposite is true i think people are less likely now to worry about the environment because there's so much else to worry about see i always believed that a lot of the worry about the kind of uh, from the eco planks as i used to call them uh, was that you know they really they didn't have much to worry about their lives were pretty good uh, so all they could do was sit around thinking about oh you know should i really take that flight to you know the seychelles maybe i'll go to soho house in oxford instead you know what i mean uh, you know more ordinary, regular people ordinary working class people don't care as much and so i think everyone now has to worry about their job they have to worry about getting coronavirus they have to worry about getting married you know there's much more to worry about so i think they're less likely to care about the environment yeah you you may well be right there actually mike you may well be right but i guess the kind of people who would worry about that would buy this um it's probably gonna be a lot more popular in certain pockets of society than it will do in others i yes. think that's probably fair well, I, th- I think that's true. And also you're saying £13 bottle of wine, obviously for a lot of people, that's quite a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. We had that chat, remember, about the average price of a bottle of wine, which yes. is just, it's just gone over £5. So, yeah, that actually is, is significantly more than a lot of people would spend who would probably be worried about this anyway. Yeah. I've got a, a lovely quote here from one London wine collector who's chosen to remain anonymous. I haven't drunk wine out of anything but glass since I was a teenager on holiday in Spain. While I like to think I have an open mind on these matters, I'm not sure this will catch on, especially among connoisseurs. But, as, I mean, it might, as you say, it might have a kind of um, novelty value. It, it may do, but I think that actually a lot of producers in the end might not even have a choice. So I, mm. I think that because they, I've got a feeling that heavy bottles are going to be taxed a lot more and all of that is going to make 
the kind of wine bottles that we know and, and love sort of a little bit too expensive for the producers to make in the end. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if we just it just something like this becomes normal in the future. Maybe not right now, but in the future anyway. And it might just become a new normal. Yeah. But hopefully, if it does, they'll make them look slightly more attractive. Right. I mean, one of the things I've noticed a bit more of, and and I've always wondered why we can't do this in this country, um, is that kind of continental European thing where you turn up. Um, like I've seen people turning up at pubs, takeaway pubs, with their own uh, sort of bottle, right? And they ask for the, for the for the guys to fill it up with something. Now, you and I both have probably been to those lovely, beautiful villages in Spain where there's one shop and they've got all these barrels behind the counter, and you go, you want some sherry, you know, here's a jug for it. You want some white wine, you want some red wine, you know, and it's all sold really very cheaply to people who actually are recycling more than they realize yeah um that i mean why is, can't we do that well we we have we have been a little bit i think waitrose was trialing that um and also there are a couple of wine shops around london obviously that i know of that have these massive tanks mm. and you can buy like like a quite a nice rustic glass bottle and you can go and refill and it's the same stuff it's inexpensive but it's really good right you know that really juicy southern french lovely yeah. lovely one but it still feels a little bit elite because of where those places are but yeah. i think there's a huge opportunity there to have more sort of wines on tap that people can can fill up right. as long as the wine is good <laughs> better than it used to be in the past well of course because I think you, I think you were the person that told me uh, that an awful lot of the wine that, that is sold in bottles in this country actually doesn't come into the country in bottles. It's bottled here, so you know there's no reason why you couldn't sort of take a, a, a bunch of it out, out, in, out in bulk and put it in a big barrel and then sell it from the corner shop. Yeah, I mean there are. Yeah, that is that is certainly the case. There are many ways of doing this. I think I think you've got a great business idea, and you know, and I'm in. Well, listen, I, I've, I've got many great business ideas, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're all in my head. But there we are. So um, as far as the whole lockdown thing goes, we keep being told that more people are drinking more and more than ever before. Uh, this must be good because we hear about sort of businesses that are not doing well in lockdown. Presumably the wine business is doing rather well. Um, a lot of people have. I think those who had their um, customer services in place already have done really well. And those who pivoted really quickly um, who didn't before yeah. have done really well. I mean, Majestic crashed because we couldn't get enough wine. And, um, you know, and was speaking to some of the merchants I know, you know, they've done really, really well. Mm. But the, on the, the, those wine companies that supply the on-trade obviously have had untold amounts of problems, especially if they didn't have the abilities to to change and suddenly be cons consumer-facing yeah. fast. You know, they lost all their accounts overnight and... That's been really hard. But, you know, uh, it's weird. It, this lockdown has really split people between the lockdown lushes and the lockdown sort of lightweights. A lot of people just stopped. Mm. And a lot of people have just kept on going. Just not <laughs> stopped, <so>. basically. Yeah, <laughs> Opening yeah, the mean, first bottle earlier and earlier, presumably. Well, yeah, yes, absolutely. Because there's there's really, there aren't any other treats to be had. No. So that's the thing. Well, you're so looking, well. You're looking as if you, you're you're well rested and and um, having a good time. So uh, very nice to see you, Helena. Thank you very much indeed. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio. We expect uh, Boris Johnson to get up and uh, announce a bunch of shovel-ready projects. This presumably is the new version of oven-ready projects, which is what he talked about before. Uh, but the Brexit uh, scenario was all sorted out. Charlotte Ivers is here with us. Charlotte, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, this has been very widely trailed. This speech hasn't it? I mean, we don't know everything that's going to be in it but we do know some of the figures we do know some of the announcements that like to be tell us what those are 
It has indeed. So we're looking at £1.5 billion this year for hospital maintenance. We're looking at 29 new road projects costing £100 million and a 10-year school rebuilding programme. So as you say, lots of money, lots of money spent on infrastructure. Mm. The hope there being that that creates jobs and gets the economy back moving again. Yes. I mean, it's a good idea from my point of view, I think, because, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, it is said, didn't actually kickstart the economy. What he did do uh, was make an awful lot of jobs available to people who didn't have a job and so if we are in a furlough situation where people come back from furlough and find that they don't have a job to go back to you know there will be public works created that they could then perhaps work in i think that is the aim because even if the furlough scheme works pretty perfectly and they work out the perfect way of easing people back into work there will be businesses that go bust there will be jobs that no longer exist Mm. so that friction is going to cause problems when it comes to unemployment and in turn problems when it comes to tax revenue so the government's big bets is if they can spend now, then they will ward off that long-term problem. The problem they will face is if they spend now, it doesn't work, and they end up with fewer jobs, a lower tax intake, and less money to make up for it. I suppose that the other problem they might have, as we were just talking about HS2 in the last hour, is the length of time it seems to take in this country to get from point A to point B. I mean, it's all very well to talk about shovel-ready projects, which I'm not even sure I know (laughs) what that means. But I presume it means that you don't need to get planning permission. You don't need to actually worry about the red tape. You can actually go and start building the houses that he says you're going to build tomorrow. That was something I sort of felt a bit uneasy about Mm. as well, reading all of these plans. I think that's a very, very fair assessment. One thing that might make the government slightly cheerier about this is the fact that over the course of the last few months they have been able to show that actually a lot of that red tape a lot of that paperwork doesn't need to be done so look at the nightingale hospitals for example and grant shaps in one of the press conferences as they used to be did say that he was thinking about big infrastructure plans big transport plans could we get roads through quicker if we can build a hospital in a month he said we can build roads in a month so maybe the government is also willing to tear up planning laws maybe but except he didn't really build the hospital in a month did he He just (laughs) adapted an already building that was already there uh, into a hospital with some beds in it uh, which it turned out they didn't really need to use so so yeah i mean i take the point that they they did a brilliant job um but they drafted an awful lot an awful lot of people and we're in a kind of new era of government spending aren't we because Basically, you know, there's nobody saying you can't do that. We can't afford it. They're all just going, oh, yeah, you can do what you like. Exactly. And I think there comes a point where every new number just becomes part of the kind of great, great mush Mm. of things that we are spending money on. So it doesn't feel like a big, big spend. Mm. The other person I think who would feel fairly nervous looking at this is Keir Starmer. Yes. How on earth do you outrank this government to the left as the leader of the Labour Party when they are spending quite so much yes. money? On, on public projects as well, because, I mean, we're hoping to speak to somebody from the Labour Party after uh, Boris finishes his speech. But the bottom line, as you say, for Keir Starmer is that he can't disagree with what they're doing and he can't really say you should be doing more because there's nowhere for him really to go, is there? (laughs) Exactly, which I think is why he's attacking them on competence, which I think is a much better angle for him to go for, because obviously these vast, vast works things are going to go wrong. We've Mm. already seen things go wrong already. So if that continues, we'll find ourselves in quite an odd historical moment. It's always been the case that the message about the Conservatives is you don't like them, but you know they're going to do it properly and you know they're not going to cause any problems. Whereas Labour, cuddly and fluffy... But are they going to mess it up? Yeah. It think, might be that we have that switch over. Well, we may well do. And uh, Boris Johnson is just approaching the lectern. Let's uh, go to him now. Good morning, everybody. Well, it's great to be here at uh, Dudley College of Technology. Fantastic. Welcome. Thank you. And um, it may seem a bit premature to make a speech now about 
Britain after COVID, when that deceptively nasty disease is still rampant in other countries and when global uh, case numbers are growing fast and when many in this country are nervous, rightly, about more outbreaks, whether national or local, like the flare-up in Leicester, whereas I promise we're putting on the brakes and I thank the people of Leicester for their forbearance. And yet we cannot continue simply to be prisoners of this crisis. We're preparing now slowly, cautiously, to come out of hibernation, and I believe it's absolutely vital for us to set out the way ahead so that everyone can think and plan for the future, short, medium, and long term. Because if the COVID crisis has taught us one thing, it's that this country needs to be ready for what may be coming, and we need to be able to move with levels of energy and speed that we have not needed for generations. And I know that there are plenty of things that people will say, uh, and we got wrong. And we owe that discussion and that honesty to the tens of thousands who have died before their time, to the families who have lost loved ones. And of course, there must be time to learn the lessons, and we will. But I also know that some things went right and emphatically right. And I think of the speed and efficiency with which we put up the Nightingales, 10 days for a hospital. I think of the drive and inventiveness of the British companies who rose to the ventilator challenge with three brand new production lines called into being within the space of eight weeks with a new model of ventilator developed in March and granted regulatory approval in weeks, and nine and a half thousand of them now made. I pay tribute to the pace at which Oxford University managed to perform the trials for dexamethasone, the world's first demonstrably life-saving treatment for the disease. I'm in awe of the problem-crunching fury with which HMRC and the Treasury created the furlough scheme and all the other means of support. World-leading standards of protection for jobs and incomes set up in a matter of days. There were brilliant and determined individuals who more than rose to the challenge of this crisis. There were thousands and thousands who put their hearts and souls into it. And yet our debt is not just to them, it's not just even to the devotion and the love of the NHS and the care workers who saved so many lives, including my own. There was one big reason in the end that we were able to avert a far worse disaster, and that was because the whole of society came together to make a sacrifice on behalf of those who might be particularly vulnerable, particularly the elderly. We all knew when we went into lockdown that there would be huge economic costs and we could see what would happen. And yet we did it. The United Kingdom, in a display of solidarity not seen since the Second World War. And so today, we must combine that energy and drive with that concentrated burst of collective willpower that protected the NHS and controlled the virus and saved literally hundreds of thousands 
of lives, and we must work fast because we've already seen the vertiginous drop in GDP, and we know that people are worried now about their jobs and their businesses, and we're waiting as if between the flash of lightning and the thunderclap with our hearts in our mouths for the full economic reverberations to appear. And so we must use this moment now, this interval, to plan our response and to fix, of course, the problems that were most brutally illuminated in that COVID lightning flash, the problems in our social care system, the parts of government that seemed to respond so sluggishly so that sometimes it seemed like that recurring bad dream when you're telling your feet to run and your feet won't move. And yet we must also go further and realize that if we are to recover fully, if we're to deal with the coming economic aftershock, then this COVID crisis is also the moment to address the problems in our country that we have failed to tackle for decades. Because it's one of the most extraordinary features of the UK, in so many ways the greatest place on earth, that we tolerate such yawning gaps between the best and the rest. We have some of the best and most productive companies in the world, and yet we are not as nationally productive as many of our global competitors. We have the world's most brilliant medical minds, the world's best pharmaceutical companies, our doctors, our treatments are the best in the world. And yet we have so many millions who have to wait for too long to see their GP even before the new waiting lists produced by the crisis. We have umpteen fantastic, globally outstanding universities. And yet too many degree courses are not now delivering value. And for a century, we've failed to invest enough in further education and give young people the practical training and further education they need. We have a a capital city, London, was, is, will be, in so many ways, the capital of the world. Great respect to Andy. Theatre, finance, tech, restaurants, you name it, London leads the world. And yet too many parts of our amazing country have felt left behind, neglected, unloved, as though someone had taken a strategic decision that their fate did not matter as much as the metropolis. So I want you to know that this government not only has a vision to change this country for the better, we have a mission to unite and to level up. And it's the mission on which we were elected last year, and we have a plan. And in advancing that plan now, I just serve notice that we will not be responding to this crisis with what people called austerity. You're listening to Boris We're Johnson on Talk Radio. We're not our way out of trouble because the world has moved on since 2008. And we not only face a new and in some ways a far bigger challenge, and I can tell everybody, businesses, that next week the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, will be setting out our immediate plan to support the economy through the, the first phase of the recovery. But this moment also gives us a much greater chance to be radical and to do things differently, to build back 
better and to build back bolder. And so we will be doubling down on our strategy. We will double down on leveling up, if you can make sense of that. And when I say level up, I don't mean, I don't mean attacking our great companies, or I don't mean impeding the success of, of London, far from it, or launching some punitive raid on the wealth creators. I don't believe in tearing people down any more than I believe in tearing down statues that are part of our heritage, let alone a statue of our greatest wartime leader. I believe in building people up, giving everyone growing up in this country the opportunity they need. Whoever you are, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, and there are certain things that are indispensable for that opportunity. Hospital you're born in, schools you go to, the safety of the streets where you grow up. And this government has not forgotten that we were elected to build 40 new hospitals. And we will. Matt Hancock is setting out the list in the next few days, and that is just the beginning. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We will continue and step up the biggest ever program of funding the NHS. And we won't wait to fix the problems of social care that every government has flunked for the last 30 years. We will end the injustice that some people have to sell their homes to finance the cost of their care, while others don't. And we're finalizing our plans, and we will build a cross-party consensus. We want to look after those who have looked after us. And at the same time, we will build the foundations now for future prosperity to make this country a Britain that is fully independent and self-governing for the first time in 45 years, the most attractive place to live, to invest, to set up a company with the most motivated and highly skilled workforce. And so we're investing massively now in education with over £14 billion for primary and secondary education between now and 2023, and today with a new 10-year school building programme, begin, beginning now with £1 billion for the first 50 schools and a vast uh, £1.5 billion programme for refurbishing 
our uh, dilapidated FE sector, dilapidated in many places, not here, of course, uh, because it's time. It's time that the system recognized that talent and genius are expressed as much by hand and by eye as they are by a spreadsheet or an essay. So when I say unite and level up, when I say build up people and build up talent, I want to end the current injustice. That means a pupil from a London state school is now 50% more likely to go to a top university than a pupil from the West Midlands. And that is not only unjust, it is such a waste of human talent. We will unleash the potential of the entire country. And that means basic things, cracking down, again, on the crime that blights too many of our streets and too many lives. And we'll get on with our plan to recruit 20,000 more police officers. We've already found 3,000, already recruited 3,000. And I thank the police again for everything they're doing and have done in this crisis. And we will back our police all the way and give our justice system the powers we need to end the lunacy that stops us, for instance, deporting some violent offenders, just as we've already stopped the automatic early release of terrorists. We'll make this country safer. We will build the hospitals, build the schools, the colleges, but we will also build back greener and build a more beautiful Britain. We will protect our landscape with flood defences and plant 30,000 hectares of trees every year, creating a new patchwork of woodlands to enchant and re-energise the soul. And in those towns that feel left behind, we have plans to invest in their centres, new academy schools, new green buses, new broadband, and we want to make them places where people have the confidence to stay, to raise their families, to start businesses, and not to feel that all the action is in the cities or in the metropolis. And yet, I don't think that this crisis has ended the desire or the need to move around swiftly and efficiently. We've all, or many of us, been learning the wonders of Zoom and MS Teams and the pleasure of muting and unmuting our colleagues at key moments. Uh, but we still need to travel. And more than ever, the time has come when we must unite and level up in the most basic way possible, not just with HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail, but with better roads, better rail all round, unlocking the central Manchester bottleneck that delays services across the north, 4,000 brand new zero carbon buses, a massive new plan for cycleways across the country, and we will build and rebuild those vital connections to every part of the UK, because now is the moment to strengthen that incredible partnership between England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And I know that uh, sometimes people have played up the legitimate variations in response between the devolved administrations. But when you look at the whole effort, you can see the absolutely vital role of that union and that partnership. It is our fantastic UK armed services 
that have played such a crucial role in this crisis, running the test centres, building the hospitals, transporting people from the, the Shetlands to the right COVID wards. It was the might of the United Kingdom Treasury that set up that furlough scheme in all corners of the country, sent massive and immediate extra funding to all four parts of the UK. So I think the union has more than showed its worth. And a prosperous and united kingdom must be also be a connected kingdom. And that's why we're now accelerating projects from the southwest to the northeast, from Wales to Scotland to Northern Ireland. And to drive economic growth in all parts of the country, I can say that we will carry out a study of all future road, rail, air and cross-sea links between all our four parts of the UK. You're listening to Boris Johnson here on Talk Radio. We're going to take a, uh, a little break from it because we've got some other things to do, but we will come back to it. Uh, he's setting out his new deal. He's speaking uh, in Dudley uh, at a further education college, of course. Uh, he's talking about uh, enchanting and re-energising the soul. He's getting a bit uh, uh, sort of carried away with the new ideas that he's got, talking about reconnecting, making sure that uh, we build, uh, that we improve. Uh, we have green buses, we have new schools, we have new broadband. We make people feel as if they are uh, given more opportunity if they're outside of the big cities, outside of the metropolis. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We just listened to Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, up in Dudley. Uh, five billion pounds pledged for this new deal. Um, Wes Streeting joins me now. He's the Shadow Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury from Labour. Wes, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. What did you make, first of all, of, of Boris's speech? I, I would say, I suppose, with, with, without waiting for you to say it, that it, it was all a bit vague, wasn't it? It was a bit all over the shop, um, to be honest. Uh, I think he definitely needs a sharper speechwriter, but it's the content and the substance that people will be most interested in. Um, I, I think given that he has trailed this speech as, you know, uh, the, the big new deal, build, 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 you know, sort of FDR post-crash uh, uh, post ambition, I think the, the substance doesn't quite match the rhetoric. I mean, just to put into context, um, in today's money, um, Roosevelt's, uh, New Deal, which the Prime Minister referenced, would have cost about £800 billion, 40% of GDP. What the Prime Minister announced today wasn't actually any new money. He was simply saying, here's a whole load of things we plan to build. We're going to bring £5 billion worth of that um, expenditure forward, 0.2% um, of GDP. Uh, so, uh, Mike, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with, the, with the projects he wants to bring forward. Um, you know, that's fine. But um, the, the challenge that we're going to have as a country, we already see it in the unemployment figures. Structural unemployment in this country is going to be on a level that we haven't seen uh, in decades. And infrastructure can play a role in creating jobs and getting people to work and stimulating the economy. But 
there are going to be lots of people who are losing their jobs and who are going to be displaced for whom these sorts of jobs are just not going to be available. So the government, and that's why we've called for next week an emergency budget, not just a statement, but a full budget, a back-to-work budget focused on jobs, jobs, jobs. Because unless you've got, um, you know, job retention programs, you know, we, we introduced the Future Jobs Fund in the, during the financial crisis to help young people in particular, uh, we are going to see levels of structural unemployment, which are not only going to harm the economy for all of us, but are going to have a devastating impact on the people who are experiencing unemployment, particularly the young, is going to blight communities. And in the long run, the country is going to be paying a much bigger cost. So um, heavy on the rhetoric, um, but not so good on the reality is my verdict. On yeah. the well, I suppose the reality will remain to be seen because we are looking into the future and none of us have a crystal ball. But what we can say uh, is that the sentiment is right and the sentiment certainly to rebuild Britain and to repeat uh, uh, the, the promises to, to rebuild infrastructure as well. Because there's plenty wrong with the infrastructure of this country. I mean, you don't have to drive around it to see how bad the roads are in many places, how, how inhospitable uh, some of the uh, areas are to get to. Um, you know, we've also got a, a shortage of housing which we've had for, for a long time I mean I think what he said was was absolutely fine it's just that I was expecting a bit more detail uh, as to when it might start but clearly I suppose at the moment it's difficult for him to know when it can begin well, I think you're right to sort of say, you know, where, where's the Prime Minister going to actually deliver? I mean, in 2015, they made a commitment to build 200,000 starter homes uh, and allocated £2.3 billion for that project. Not a single one of those homes was delivered. So even with the limited ambition the Prime Minister set out today, I think there have been real question marks about this government's record of actually being able to deliver. And what was the reason um, for, for, for them not being, is, what was the reason for them not being delivered? Uh, well, there's a good question and questions we've been asking of the government. I think they just wanted to sort of quietly drop the whole thing. I don't quite understand why they had gone to all the trouble of making the pledge, allocating the money. And bearing in mind that was that was a 2015 parliament. We've had two general elections since then. And, and you know, I yeah, think you've lost both of them. Sort of moved, moved on. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, th- there are there are sort of other big questions as well. I mean, the, the prime minister said, let's build back green. Well, we know climate change is one of the biggest issues facing not just our country, but the planet. Um, he and announced some tree planting today, um, measured in acres, by the way, not numbers of trees, which falls far short of what other countries like New Zealand are doing in terms of planting trees. Again, you know, your listeners, you know, me included, uh, fine, great, build, plant some more trees, plant even more than you've announced. But um, what about home insulation to bring down people's energy bills and to reduce the environmental impact there? What about the green industries um, of the future where we can see um, job creation and economic development, which not only reduces the um, emissions of the UK, but accelerates our progress towards the net, net zero target. Um, I, I'm, I'm really disappointed, to be honest, because the rhetoric that had been coming out of the government around um, prioritising climate change, the levelling up agenda, building infrastructure. I mean, these are the sorts of things where even a Conservative government could actually get cross-party support. Um, instead, we were left with something which I think fell far short of, of the, the trailing of the speech in the media and some of the headlines today. 
uh, and will sort of, as you said, you know, people listening to the Prime Minister's speech will probably be scratching their heads saying, what on earth was all that about? What, what was actually in that speech? Well, interestingly, I mean, the, the reaction is, is twofold that I'm seeing, and I know that social media is never a good place to, uh, to, to garner a sort of, you know, public opinion from, but, but some people are enjoying the, the fact that it's a positive speech. We've had so much negativity. You know, we have been in the midst of a lockdown, uh, which we've been trying to come out of. There have been extraordinary uh, situations that we've had to encounter, all of us, not just the government, but, but your own party and, and, and everybody in public life and, and everybody in, in Britain, really. So, I mean, there is a part of the, the audience, I think, that likes the, the positivity and, and the, um, um, you know, the, the kind of ambition. But, you know, it's not quite enough, is all I'm saying. No, no, and I, I would agree with that. And we need more than warm words and fine sentiments. We need a proper plan to get Britain back to work, um, a budget focused on jobs, and an infrastructure plan, both for the short term and the longer term, that in particular sort of connect some of um, the towns around the country to some of the cities and make sure that um, the economic growth that, that, that the country will hopefully get back to um, benefits everyone. Because I think over the course of the last decade, you know, we've seen anemic growth in this country. We've seen um, the gap both in incomes and wealth um, widening. And I think there are lots of people who felt that life hasn't been great and, and if anything, has gotten worse. So Yeah, but you know, unfortunately, I, I lots of people also voted in great... Too, yeah, but Wes, hang on. To, hang on, Wes. I mean, loads of people voted in big numbers for the Conservative Party government, which has currently got an 80-seat majority. And what they firmly rejected was the Labour Party and its policies. Well, I, I take that on the chin. And... Um, you know, I've been very critical about where the Labour Party got itself to in the in the run up to the last general election. I think um, people are seeing under fresh leadership uh, under Keir Starmer um, a, a more serious team, a more effective opposition, and hopefully we can build back trust and confidence over the course of this Parliament. And by the next general election, people might give us the the trust and the confidence to govern again. But in the meantime, there are big challenges facing the country. Um, these are big long term decisions um, that the Prime Minister's got to face up to and we will be holding him to account and putting to putting forward um, proposals as well to try and make this government the best it can be in all of our interests because i don't want to see people's jobs thrown on the scrap heap i don't want to see unemployment climbing even further and for young people in particular who are most vulnerable to the unemployment that we're seeing i don't want to see their futures and their livelihoods blighted by this immediate crisis. Um, I mean, this recession is unprecedented. When you look at all of the indicators of job losses, the, the, the rate of, um, of, of economic collapse in GDP, I mean, this really is unprecedented. That is a big challenge for the government. We acknowledge that. We've tried to work constructively with them through it. But I, I really don't think, compared to some of the earlier announcements we had earlier on in this crisis, when Rishi Sunak was announcing the job retention scheme, for example, with support from the Labour Party and the Trade Union Congress, that was quite ambitious. Um, I, I didn't see that same level of ambition reflected in the actual substance of what the Prime Minister announced today. And I hope that's something that the Chancellor will do better on when he comes to the House of Commons next week. Well, we shall see. Wes, thank you very much indeed. Wes Streeting, Shadow Executive Secretary to the Treasury from the Labour Party. Uh, wants to see more, wants to hear more. I think many of us will want to see more and hear more. And maybe we will do that next week. Uh, certainly, it's a positive statement from Boris Johnson. Uh, I make no bones about the fact that I would have liked to hear slightly more detail. It's a step in the right direction. If he wants to spend five billion quid rebuilding Britain, then I'm all for it. You know, let's get it on. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
right now, though, uh, it is that time, homeschooling time here in the Independent Republic, because after the news at 12.30, that's what we've been doing all the way through uh, this lockdown, ever since we've been doing uh, homeschooling, because you've had your kids at home. You might still have them at home. Uh, very few of them have actually now gone back. We're going to speak now, though, uh, to David Harper, antiques broker, TV presenter, uh, author of A Romp with the Georgians, and also formerly... Uh, an impersonator of Dominic Cummings, not necessarily intentionally. Uh, David, a very good afternoon to you. Mike, hello. Very good to see you again. Yes, very nice to see you too. Now, last time we spoke, it was because we thought that you might have been uh, mistaken for Dominic Cummings up in the northeast of England, uh, where you live and work. And, uh, you know, people thought that we were somehow making a political point when we were just having a bit of a laugh. It was, you couldn't make it up, could you? I mean, it was just remarkable. The publicity, I've got to tell you, that we've had, for Barnet Castle has been fabulous. Yes. You just couldn't write a check for it. So, you know, thank you, Dominic Cummings. Whether he's <laughs> here or not, who knows? I mean, who you cares? know, maybe you should put him in charge of the English Tourist Board, but that's another story. <laughs> now, you've written this book here called A Romp with the Georgians. Now, tell yeah. us, as a, I mean, it's an unusual thing to do as an antiques dealer. If you've got a particular interest in the Georgians because of the, the antiques that you've, you've yeah. been uh, yeah. sort of yeah. dealing in. I've had a fascination with the Georgians since I was five years old. It's my favourite period in history. I love British history and I adore the Georgians. They were great inventors. They were fashion gurus. They conquered the world. They developed trains. The Industrial Revolution, Mike, can be credited to the Georgians. If it wasn't for the British Georgians, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd have no cars, no internet. You wouldn't have a radio show. So you've got to thank your Georgian ancestors for being so inventive. And they seemingly were pretty civilised people, were they not? Very much so. They tried incredibly hard to be civilised. And they were very philanthropic, in actual fact. The, the guy, John Walker, who invented the matches in 1827, was a chemist from Stockton-on-Tees in the northeast of England. His family said to him, John, this is an amazing invention. You're going to make a fortune. You must patent it. He said, no, I've got enough money. I'm a single man. I want for nothing. I want the world to have light. So he gave the, the world matches. We invented trains, Mike. And by the way, the British, the Georgian British, abolished slavery. Now, I know it's not very popular these days to talk about that, but however, it is true. And the British Georgians don't get enough credit for it. Yes, I was going to say, I mean, according to your book, the, the time span we're dealing with here is 1714 to 1830, which is which is a fairly uh, long period of time uh, for Georges uh, as the as the rulers, uh, as you say, uh, the four King Georges. Um, um, and apparently um, they did just make the world a better place. I've got a list of Georgian proverbs here. Um, some of which are, I, I would have to say, slightly obvious, but, but nonetheless, you can't disagree with them. Um, for example, a door must be either shut or open, which actually on the face of it sounds obvious, but I kind of see what they're doing there. Yeah, it's basically get on with it. The Georgians were like that. They were doers. They weren't talkers and whingers and moaners. They got on and they tried stuff. Sometimes it went very wrong, but they picked themselves up and reinvented themselves. And that's why we have an awful lot of the luxuries that we take for granted, because of that very small group of British people, less than 15 million of them, Mike. Yes. And why was it that this sudden period of time came to be that this, this was when, you know, the sort of the age of enlightenment, if you like, was, was in Britain? You know, it was just an explosion of ideas and confidence. And I think that's what the Georgians drifted. 
positively dripped in confidence and trying new things. And they spread an awful lot of good around the world. I know they get knocked an awful lot these days, as not an awful lot of British history does, but the Georgians did an awful lot of good for multi-millions of people, including building the foundations of the democracy that we have today. Right. And do you have a favourite King George? And if so, why? You know what? Probably King George III, the one that went mad. He was quite possibly the (laughs) nicest of the Georges. He actually liked his children. The other Georges, they positively hated their children. George I celebrated when one of his sons died because he hated him so much. The Georges were a fascinating family, completely dysfunctional, but a celebrity family of the day. And if they were on Twitter now, Mike, they would have more followers than Donald Trump. (laughs) I see that. And and tea seems to figure quite a lot in your book. Um, There was some sort of not, it wasn't that tea was invented by the Georges or discovered by the Georges, but they kind of refined it, didn't they? They loved it. They loved drinking, generally. They adored gin. I mean, that was a big gin craze during the Georgian period. It just about wiped out society. The government fought for decades to try and stop people drinking gin. But once they got rid of the gin, they did actually discover tea, because tea became the British drink, as it is today. I'm having a cup of tea now. It cost me two pence to make this cup of tea. But if we were to travel back in time 300 years, 1720, Mike, that one cup of tea would cost tens of pounds because the cost of tea back in the early Georgian period, one teaspoon of tea equated to the average weekly wage of a servant girl. Now, a servant girl would get bored and lodgings, let's say she was earning 50 to 100 pounds a week in spending money. So a pot of tea for four would cost you about, in today's terms, 250 pounds. So it was just in the beginning, right up there for the higher echelons Mm. only. But what's fascinating with tea and the Georgian period, and you can relate it so well to the way we live today and the problems we have. Study history, Mike, you'll see that nothing is new. Once you find a product that everybody wants, and is very expensive, then in come the fakers. So people were faking tea. Dealers were taking old tea leaves, drying them out, trying to resell them as new ones, as new tea, which is fine. But then they started adding copper and lead to the leaves to try and give them a bit of a fresh look. And then there was something called British tea, which is absolutely revolting. British tea was not tea at all. It was unscrupulous dealers who collected leaves from the hedgerows, crunched them up and packaged them as tea. Admittedly, it was cheap, but it tasted utterly revolting and it was known to kill people. And then the best form of adulterated tea was this one, Mike. You take old leaves, you add in some indigenous leaves from ash or elderberry, hawthorn trees, a little bit of real tea, and then you sink these monkey leaves in a vat of water, add some sheep dung, let it ferment for a day or two, give it a stir, dry it out, package it up and sell it as real tea from China. There was all sorts of shenanigans Mm. going on. It was unbelievable. That sounds like green tea that they sell you now, which (laughs) tastes absolutely revolting. Did they also put milk in it back in those days? Or did they invent putting milk in tea? Because a lot of tea that came from China uh, was not drunk with milk in the beginning, was it? Well, no, that's right. The, 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 The true way to drink tea, of course, is to drink it black. And in those days, they would drink tea out of tea bowls. 
So these are cups without handles. Mm. And where we get the milk first or milk second is actually from the Georgians, because if you were a lady having a tea party, this was a big social event and you had an awful lot of stuff to prove that you were sophisticated, you knew how to make really good tea and you could afford it. The china cups you drank the tea from were as vital as the tea itself. If you had a real china cup, real china porcelain from China, be very expensive and it would be fine. You would pour your boiling tea into that tea bowl and it wouldn't crack because it was extreme quality and very expensive. However, if you had a cheap imitation, maybe something made in Holland or what we call Delftware, mm. he would be petrified to pour boiling tea into that Delft cup because it would be known to completely explode and crack. So to save the porcelain, she would pour cold milk into the bottom of the tea bowl, enabling the teacup to accept the hot tea without smashing. So it became posh and very refined Interesting. to pour the boiling tea in because it proved you had the top-end quality porcelain. And as far as the way that the sort of society back then was structured, I mean, if you were obviously connected to the royals uh, and King George and, and the various court people, that would be one thing. But was there a sort of a secondary middle class, perhaps, of Georgians who were, um, I don't know, uh, entrepreneurs who worked for the East India Company, that kind of thing? Well, the East India Company played a big role. Um, and, and of course, there were layers within the East India Company from right the bottom, right to the top. But the great thing with British society then, as is now, anybody can make it. George Stevenson, the guy responsible for being the father of trains and spreading you know, mass quick transportation around the world, couldn't read or write until he was 18 years old. He was a pitman, had no formal education whatsoever. But because of his ability with steam locomotion trains and because of his cleverness, he got meetings with the, the, the high ploy and he got the best jobs in the country for building railways and locomotions and everything else. So yes, there was obviously a structure in society like there is today, but like today, you can start at the bottom and you can end up being Prime Minister. It's a great system. Yes, it certainly is. It's a fascinating book um, and very well uh, done for, for, for putting it out there. Now you have a TV show up there in that part of the world, do you? Well, I'm on the BBC Antique Shows, Bargain Hunt, Antiques Road Trip, that kind of thing. And I'm hoping that the, a romp with the Georgians, because it's a fun look at mm. Georgian society and it's full of stories that our history teachers didn't teach us, dastardly funny things, uh, that there's talk of making it into some form of show. So I, I hope that comes up. Yes, we have to make sure not too many statues in there, I suppose, and make sure that it's uh, politically correct so you don't upset anybody or offend anybody. But listen, David, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. A romp with the Georgians. David Harper, uh, I hope you learned something from that. I certainly did. Uh, once more, uh, the homeschooling section of this show uh, becomes a hit. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.